0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I don't usually talk much about the following week's podcast, but today's podcast is a setup for next week's podcast. To be honest, next week's podcast is probably way overdue, but we'll be talking with my wife about the world of phrenectomies. That's lip tie, tongue tie, if you're not familiar with that word. So today, as a setup for that, we'll be talking about fascia. Oh, the world of fascia. So many ideas, but what does the research tell us? So let's dive into fascia so we can really understand what phrenectomies are all about. Do you ever think about the truth? When I was first starting in practice, I would often think about the truth the way the old time scientists would think about it. They knew that somewhere out there is the truth. The truth doesn't care if you know it. It'll just keep on being the truth. In fact, the truth will go on being the truth whether you know it or you don't know it. Our goal should always be to discover the truth because we know it's out there without bias, without emotion, and without preference. The truth just is. The only variable is us and whether or not we know the truth. We live in a culture that wants to define the truth. You've heard the term, your truth. I mean this nicely, but there's no such thing as your truth. There's only your perspective of the truth. We've simply abused the English language by substituting the word truth for perspective. Think about a mirror. There's a truth of what you actually look like. When you look in a mirror, you're hoping to gain a perspective of that truth and to kind of see a little piece of what you actually look like. But you can only see one side of your head at a time, so your perspective is limited. When we talk about science, we're looking for insight to gain perspective, but we would be arrogantly ignorant to think we could see all of science in its totality. Now you might be thinking, where is he going with all this? Well today we're going to be talking about fascia. Fascia has become a very popular topic with many products being sold to assist you with your fascia problems. The problem is, is it true? Let me start at the end and just tell you that I cannot tell you what is absolutely true. But I can tell you that you should have some doubts about some of the things you've probably heard about fascia. So let's dive into that and see where we land. A very interesting thing happened around 2019. Somewhere around that time, all of the research surrounding the topic of fascia began to draw the exact opposite conclusion from what was concluded by all the research that was done before that time. This occurred primarily in regard to the contractility of fascia. Prior to 2019, nearly all the research showed, and it was generally concluded, that fascia was non-contractile tissue. The only purpose for fascia was to reduce friction associated with muscle movements. There are very few fascia pathologies. So, let's talk about a few and see what kind of insight we can gain from what little we do know about true fascia pathology. Hernias are probably the most legitimate form of fascia pathology. Hernias are always a consequence of fascia becoming loose, not tight. This tells us something about the nature of fascia, that it needs to be tight in order to be effective and it loses functionality when it loses its tension. The first time I ever heard of someone treating fascia was in regards to foam rolling the tensor fascia lata. Honestly, I laughed out loud and I thought they were joking. The TFL is a pelvic stabilizer and a balancing muscle. It's also a superficial muscle, which means that it lacks mechanical advantage to be a major mover of anything. In fact, try to flex your TFL right now. Go ahead, (laughs) just try. And this is the muscle giving everybody so much trouble? Really? Okay, well how about if I give you an alternative explanation? A, you know, chiropractic explanation. Are muscles ever a source of pain or dysfunction? We talked about that last time. Muscles serve to create form, structure, and movement. Muscles cause pain when they are forced to adapt to dysfunction, but they do not cause the dysfunction. So what would cause TFL dysfunction? The TFL, as I previously stated, is a pelvic stabilizer. So pelvic dysfunction would cause TFL dysfunction, at least in theory, However, what is most commonly referred to as TFL dysfunction is most commonly, actually, a neuritis of the L5 nerve or possibly the S1 nerve. As we know, this is most commonly caused by subluxation of L5 or S1 affecting the L5 disc. Now the scenario I've seen most commonly in in this kind of patient who is obsessively foam rolling their TFL and they can't understand why it isn't getting better and it might even be getting worse? One or two adjustments is usually all it takes to make a dramatic difference, proving that this was never a problem with the TFL. It was a neuritis. I give you this example in order to remove it as a possible example of fascia dysfunction. Perhaps the most famous fascia dysfunction is plantar fasciitis. The plantar fascia serves a backup function so that it maintains the arch of the foot when the foot loses its natural strength due to misalignment. The bony arch of the foot is structured like a Roman arch and gets its strength based on the same principles of physics. When a patient has plantar fasciitis, you know there's a misalignment somewhere in the foot. I'll go over how to fix that some other time, but for today's, today's topic, I hit the research to see if plantar fasciitis gives us any unique perspective on fascia dysfunction. The most surprising thing that I found immediately was that the research has drawn the conclusion that plantar fasciitis is improperly named because there's absolutely no evidence that there's any inflammation. They suggested the name plantar fasciopathy would be more appropriate for what we are experiencing. Their reasoning is that the plantar fascia is operating in a function that's different from how it should function but without any inflammation. The problem with plantar fasciitis is simply that the normal mechanism of a foot has been compromised. The fascia is doing more than it should But this is not a failure on the part of the fascia, much like the way muscles get in trouble when they do too much or the wrong things, but it's not a failure of normal function. Since 2019, there have been many studies that demonstrate the presence of myofibroblasts in the fascia. It is presumed, then, that this is an indication that fascia has contractile ability in opposition of what was previously the doctrine of fascia, that it was non-contractile tissue. But wait there's more when studies are done to see how much force can be created by the fascia with its own contractile ability it was determined to be so small that it was doubtful it had any measurable influence on joint biomechanics so they theoretically concluded that the fascia can contract but they can't find evidence of it doing so to the extent that it can create any difference in how the body moves without a doubt the most complete study that i found on the topic was a 2022 study. By Bordoni et al. I usually only quote from papers like this, but this time let's read for a while because this study is complete enough to help you gain some real perspective. So, quote Researchers do not agree on one comprehensive fascia definition. Despite the scientific uncertainty, there is an agreement with medical texts that the fascia covers every structure of the body, creating a structural continuity that gives form and function to every tissue and organ. The fascial tissue has a ubiquitous distribution in the body system. It is able to wrap, interpenetrate, support, and form the bloodstream, bone tissue, meningeal tissue, organs, and skeletal muscles. The fascia creates different interdependent layers with several depths, from the skin to the periosteum, forming a three dimensional mechano metabolic structure. Three large groups of scholars have attempted to define fascia. The Federative Committee on Anatomical Terminology, the FCAT, founded in 1989 from the General Assembly of the International Federation of Associations of Anatomists, introduced the term, quote, fascia superficialis, quote, and quote, fascia profunda. End quote. The superficial fascia is a quote, whole loose layer of subcutaneous tissue lying superficial to the denser layer of fascia profunda, end quote. The deep fascia, according to this definition, lies below the superficial fascia, highlighting two fascia. In 2011, the Federative International Program on Anatomical Terminologies, the FIPAT, in agreement with the FCAT, defined the fascia as, quote, a sheath, a sheet, or any other dissectable aggregations of connective tissue that forms beneath the skin to attach, enclose, and separate muscle and other internal organs." End quote. The FIPAT builds on the text of international anatomical terminology. The second definition specifies the term connective tissue, which functions to divide, separate, and support different structures. The connective tissue, or fascia, begins under the skin, excluding the epidermis from the fascia set. The third group of scholars is the Fascia Nomenclature Committee from 2014, born from the Fascia Research Society, founded in 2007. The board gave the following description of fascia, quote, The fascial system consists of the three-dimensional continuum of soft, collagen-containing, loose and dense, fibrous connective tissues that permeate the body. It incorporates elements such as adipose tissue, adventitia and neurovascular sheaths, aponeuroses, deep and superficial fascia, aponeurium, joint capsules, ligaments, membranes, meninges, myofascial expansions, periosteum, retinacula, septa, tendons, visceral fascia, and all the intramuscular and intramuscular connective tissues, including endo, peri, epimysium. The fascial system interpenetrates and surrounds all organs, muscles, bones, and nerve fibers, endowing the body with a functional structure and providing an environment that enables all body systems to operate in an integrated manner. End quote. <laughs> this is the broadest definition of fascia. The concept of a continuum of the collagen and connective structure, the cellular diversity that makes up the fascia, is emphasized. It is this continuum itself that assures the heat health of the body. These scientific definitions allow healthcare practitioners to make some deductions about fascia. The fascia includes everything that presumes the presence of collagen, connective tissue, or from which it is derived. All the tissue considered as specialized connective tissue of mesodermal derivation is is inserted into the fascial system. These include blood, bone, cartilage, adipose tissue, hematopoietic tissue, and lymphatic tissue. The fascial system has no discontinuity in its path, with layers of different characteristics and properties overlapping. A further research group for the Nomenclature of the Fascia founded in 2013, FORCE, Foundation of Osteopathic Research and Clinical Endorsement. The FORCE group has recently written several articles highlighting new concepts to understand the concept of the fascia better. So from them, quote, the fascia is any tissue that contains features capable of responding to mechanical stimuli. The fascial continuum is the result of the evolution of the perfect synergy among different tissues, liquids and solids, capable of supporting, dividing, penetrating, feeding, and connecting all the districts of the body, epidermis, dermis, fat, blood, lymph, blood and lymphatic vessels, Tissue covering the nervous filaments, endoneurium, perineurium, epineurium, voluntary striated muscle fibers, and the tissue covering and permeating it, the epimysium, the perimysium, endomysium, ligaments, tendons, aponeuroses, cartilage, bones, meninges, involuntary striated musculature, and involuntary smooth muscle. All viscera derived from the mesoderm, visceral ligaments epiplume, small and large, peritoneum, and tongue, the continuum constantly transmits and receives mechanometabolic information that can influence the shape and function of the entire body, End quote. Normal movement of the body is allowed because of the presence of the fascial tissues and their inseparable interconnection, which allows the sliding of the muscular structure the sliding of nerves and vessels between contractile fields and joints, and the ability of all organs to slide and move with each other as influenced by the position of the body. One of the fundamental characteristics of the fascia is the ability to adapt to mechanical stress, remodeling the cellular tissue structure, and mirroring the functionality and necessity of the environment where the tissue lays. For example, the plantar fascia in the foot adopts a mechanical model known as the, quote, windless mechanism in order to provide dynamic support for the medial longitudinal arch while the limb transitions from the heel strike to toe off phase of the gait cycle. The fascial continuum allows the proper distribution of tension information produced by different tissues covered or supported by the fascia so that the entire body system can interact in real time, including the epidermis. The fascial unity influences not only movement but also emotions. Dysfunction of the fascial system that is perpetuated in everyday movements can cause an emotional alteration of the person. This emotional alteration could be established originating from constant myofascial non-physiological afferents, which would bring the emotional state and the myofascial pathology to the same level. In fact, the position of the body stimulates areas of emotionality, and the presence of myofascial alterations leads to postural alterations. The myofascial system has a very fine, wide, diversified, and ever-present innervation. In particular, we can find the myelinated proprioceptive terminations, the Ruffini, Golgi, and Pacini, inside and near the connective tissue in close relationship with the muscles where the multitude of very fine, unmyelinated free terminations are in contact with the periosteum the layers such as endomysium and paramecium and in the connective tissue of all the viscera these receptors are deputies to the functions of proprioception nociception and interoception the afferent pathways of the interoception project to the autonomic and medullary centers and to the brainstem where they are sorted by the anterior cingulate cortex and the posterior dorsal insula thanks to the thalamo Cortical extension. Interoception can modulate the extraceptive representation of the body as well as pain tolerance. Dysregulation of the pathways that manage or stimulate the interoception could cause a distortion of one's body image and influence emotionality. End quote. So that whole thing I just read, that was all from that one study I referenced seemingly a long time ago. So, here we're we are gaining an understanding that fascia can influence our mechanics, even to the point of affecting emotions. The only problem is that we're only looking at the tip of the iceberg, so we don't really know how to influence this positively, and our efforts to try to do so are just as likely to influence them negatively at this point. The idea that fascia and emotions are connected is truly profound, and I think a bit frightening. I found one author, not peer-reviewed literature, mind you, who suggested from her experience that fibromyalgia is a fascia problem caused by harboring fear, which produces a chemical called TGF, which has the effect of thickening fascial tissue and triggering the nociceptive function of the fascia. Now, I don't know if any of that's actually true, but it's an interesting concept. It has been stated in the research that new discoveries in fascia give us the impression that it's probably our body's largest sensory organ. If you take everything we now know about fascia, and you think of it in terms of sensory tissue, it suddenly starts to make a lot more sense. The tie-in between muscle and fascia allows forces from muscle movement to transfer across the fascia, but that makes sense if the the purpose of the fascia is to be sensory. I also think this gives a completely different argument for why we should never manipulate joints that are not subluxated, but it also explains why some people might experience some temporary relief when they do have this type of manipulation performed. That type of stimulation could cause an overload of the sensory and a sort of an emotional high, but the results are not sustainable and they might even be detrimental in the long run. All right, so we've talked a lot about fascia in general, but let's now focus our attention on one particular piece of fascia as we prepare for our discussion for next week. The lingual frenum is the attachment on the underside of your tongue and the labial frenum is the attachment of your upper lip to the midline of your upper gums. A frenum is defined as a small fold of tissue that secures the motion of a mobile organ in the body. These two frenum, it has been presumed, were made entirely of fascial tissue. Histological studies confirm that just below the submucosal layer at the floor of the mouth is a horizontal or transverse layer of fascia. The freedom is created by a singular central fold in this fascia. That detail might seem a bit tedious, but there is a concept, or theory, or possibly even a dogma, that a tight freedom is evidence that the fascia all over the body is too tight. This is an incorrect conceptualization of what's really happening here, as a tight freedom produces horizontal tightness, not vertical tightness. In other words, a tight freedom does not exert force or tension on the floor of the mouth in a vertical direction, but rather the forces are dispersed laterally. This is important for a number of reasons. Mouth shape and size are largely determined by forces, primarily the force of the tongue. This has the potential to create an elevated palate or the tongue can push forward and create an open bite. These oral structural pathologies are caused by the abnormal application of forces. A tight lingual freedom has the potential to produce abnormal forces within the mouth. The big question is, How much is too much, and how much is too little? This question of how much is too little is one that you'll rarely find asked among the people who are performing this procedure. That's something we'll directly address next week. To tie up this subject, (laughs) no pun intended, let's end where we began, the truth. What is the truth? As I told you previously, I don't really know. I don't believe anybody does, so I'm especially leery of people who claim that they do, especially in this particular space. There are many who say you can laser the frenum and you don't even need to numb the patient. Well, how do they know that? If the fascia is the body's largest sensory organ, does that really make much sense? I think that when it comes to fascia, we need to be more cautious, and not just jump to conclusions, just because they're popular or they're driven by faddish product sales. This brings us back to the age-old question of what would Gonstead be doing if he were alive today? Do you think he'd be foam rolling his patients? Or would he be adjusting them? Sadly, there are some things that have become more common in Gonstead offices, even though you'll not find them in the chapters. You then have to wonder, was it omitted from the chapters out of ignorance? Or was it omitted with intention? I think people often assume that because it was long ago, there are many things that were omitted out of ignorance, when in fact, I think way more things were omitted with with intention. Let me give you a simple example. Pulling on the leg in a vertical direction to release the hip I know that this maneuver has gained popularity with both doctors and patients, but I don't think it was omitted from the chapters as an oversight. I think it was because both Gonstead and Roger Erbst had enough knowledge of anatomy to know that the stability of the pelvis is dependent on the femur and acetabulum remaining in close proximity to one another. So much so that the ligamentum teres capitis femoris exists for this exact purpose. Any force that's delivered down the leg in a vertical direction is not going to reposition the hip, Rather, it will serve as a long lever manipulation of the pelvis at the SI joint. As Dr. Gonstead explained, the only thing that makes the vertically oriented SI joint capable of rotation in the EX and IN dimension is the fact that the instantaneous axis of rotation of the pelvis is at the hip. By rotating at the hip, the inominate can be pulled EX or driven IN. By distracting the leg inferiorly, you are essentially creating a long leg at least in concept, if not in reality. And we all know that an anatomically long leg will have an effect on pelvic measurements. Therefore, leg distraction will not create any meaningful change at the hip, but it will create a change at the SI joint, and probably for the worse. I point all this out to make the point that we should be very cautious and hesitant to think that anything major needs to be added to the Gonstead system. As I was going over the research on this topic of fascia, I came to the immediate awareness that the sensory ability of the fascia is driven by the position of the bones and the transmission of forces across the joints. Therefore, the number one way to effect positive change in the fascia, to restore it and facilitate proper movement, is to adjust subluxations. Fascia does not have enough tensile strength or contractile ability to resist a proper adjustment, but it is sensitive to it and can immediately communicate to the brain that a positive change has taken place. Most of these fascia-based models are based on an improper understanding of what fascia is and how it works. In fact, as part of my research, I read a critical commentary of fascia models on one of the, well, I'll call it an anti-chiropractic website. They backed up all their points with research, and I found that I agreed with them entirely. Their final conclusion was that chiropractors are so gullible and ignorant that they'll believe anything, even when it's so easy to refute with basic anatomy and physiology. As much as I wanted to, I could not disagree with them. We need to be smarter than that. And in ageless chiropractic form, we should do what I was always taught to do when I was a student, and that is to always suspect a neuritis first. If somebody has an arm pain, don't suspect a tendon or a joint first, suspect a neuritis. If someone has knee pain, before you suspect the joint, suspect a neuritis. Even for the TMJ, the ligaments of which are easily injured in a motor vehicle accident or even by a dentist. Still, suspect neuritis first. This is the overriding principle of chiropractic and especially of state chiropractic. We shouldn't get distracted by flashy new ideas or over-exaggerations of the role of fascia. Having said that, we will talk more about fascia next week and talk specifically about tongue-tie-lip-tie procedures with someone who's performed hundreds of them. And since that person happens to be my wife, I can tell you that she hasn't done a single one without me assisting her. So we've seen all the same things and we've had many conversations about what we've observed. Well, I hope you found today's episode helpful and that it helped you to gain some perspective on the topic of fascia. Obviously, fascia is a real thing and we all have it, but if we think of it as a sensory organ and not as a biomechanical or stabilizing force, which the research shows it has very little ability to influence, then I think we're off on the right foot to understand its proper role. I want to thank you for joining me today. I truly do appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast and that you've given me a voice to influence you in practice. If it helps to equip you to help even one more patient, then that's all that I could ever hope for. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.